Welcome to Man Talk. Everything you wanted to know about men's health, but were afraid to ask. Hi, thanks for tuning in to Man Talk, the show that attempts to answer your personal questions with qualified professionals on a variety of subjects that concern most of our listeners. My name is Stuart, the voice of reason, along with my brilliant co-host Michael, the voice of choice. We will inform, educate, make you laugh, and give you insight into the sometimes complicated world of men's health. You're not alone out there in what you're experiencing or feeling. There's a band of brothers out there going through the same stuff. So listen up, guys and gals, and get ready to learn, live, and enjoy your life. And above all, try to flush those cares away. Our guest today is Dr. Jeffrey Botkin, esteemed faculty member at the University of Utah. Welcome, Dr. Botkin. Please share a little bit of your background with our audience. Well, thank you, Stuart and Michael. Great to be on Mantalk. I am a physician by training. I've been at the University of Utah now for uh, 28 years with uh, specialization in medical ethics and particular focus on ethical, legal, and social issues in the domain of human genetics. Well, this is a little different than our typical show, Stuart. Uh, Our topics today are a little different also. Uh, The first topic today is genetic testing. Uh, We'll be talking about the dilemmas some folks face when they learn they have a they're at risk for a disease. Uh, who wants to know this information? How, how do people respond to genetic risk information? Do we share this info with our children, our brothers, sisters? Should we? Do they want to know? How might knowing help them or, or harm their lives? Dr. Bodkin, what do you think about? Can you elaborate? Yeah. Well, there's been an explosion of genetic tests over the last 30 years or so due to the uh, rapid sequencing of the human genome. So we now can do a detailed analysis of all of our uh, DNA uh, for really relatively uh, a reasonable price. And so what this has led to is just a uh, um, large number of tests moving forward that uh, can be used at uh, almost any stage of life, uh, starting from the, the embryo and the fetus, uh, certainly through kids, but right through to uh, adults and uh, older men as well. And so some, if someone finds that they have a disease, what are some of the dilemmas that, that that creates for that person or for the family? Yeah, and the test can be used for folks who are showing symptoms of a particular condition or, say, uh, cancer, uh, if there's a particularly increased uh, prevalence of cancer in certain families, then the genetic test can be used at that point to try to determine whether there's a genetic factor that might be uh, involved in that uh, disease. Uh, Once that's been established, then other people in the family may have the option of taking that test to to determine if they, too, are at increased risk of cancer in the future. And so you can imagine the sort of psychological burdens and the difficulties of making a decision first about whether that's a test, whether that's information you really want to know. And then if you do find yourself at increased risk, um, how do you think about that information in terms of sharing it with uh, other family members, including your your kids and perhaps even cousins or other people that have uh, interest in your health, like your employer, for example. I would so, think that uh, if you have that information and say some, you're tested positive for whatever disease you can be talking about, I mean, is it something you want to be proactive about? Well, one other issue. Say there's a disease out there that there's no cure or treatment for and you're diagnosed with it and now you know you have it. I mean, what do you do about that? You lifestyle change, or how do you react to that? 
Yeah, and there's two types of responses that folks commonly talk about, and people definitely have different um, interests and psychological interests in whether they want to be tested in those circumstances. So there are situations in which you can find that uh, there are medical interventions that might reduce your, your risk, and sometimes that may mean surgery or it may mean uh, frequent uh, tests to try to evaluate uh, whether the condition has had an early start that you can intervene on. <clears throat> or in other circumstances, there will simply be lifestyle changes. How do you want to lead the rest of your, of your life? And if you're a 50-year-old man and you find that you're uh, at significant increased risk of a certain form of cancer, um, then that may change how you uh, uh, decide to live your life in terms of when you might retire, how you might uh, manage your finances, uh, those sorts of personal decisions. It, 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 there's, this goes in a lot of different directions. On a, on a simple note, uh, I just remembered uh, I went through prostate cancer over the past year and a half, and early on my urologist ordered uh, genetic testing, and he said that he expected in three or four years this would be very normal and very routine for tests to, to order, but that it was still rel relatively new. And I know a lot of friends who have gone through this in a similar time period or a few years before that was not even available to them. And, and it came back that... Uh, that there was no genetic issues, but it came back with the, you know, the, it indicated, I guess, what treatment I should be pursuing. Right. And that, and that was, you know, it was helpful in the whole matrix of what we were going through. Good. And that's important because you can look both at the genetics of the tumor itself for those people with cancer. And sometimes those tests can give a guide to what treatments might work best for your personal um, <clears throat> illness with uh, this disease. Uh, in other circumstances, those will be inherited genetic changes that uh, also give you information, again, about whether lifestyle changes might be relevant or whether other sorts of early detection. Uh, for some of these cancer genes, they have uh, an impact on multiple forms of cancer. And so you may be at increased risk, say, for prostate cancer based on a particular mutation, but you may also then be at risk for uh, breast cancer uh, as a male due to that same uh, mutation. So you want to be aware that um, you uh, need to take measures to, to evaluate uh, uh, perhaps a variety of different uh, risk factors. Yeah, that, well, that brings up uh, something we talked about before <coughs> we went on the air uh, about the link between prostate cancer and many of our listeners uh, are similar age, uh, at least to me, I don't know about Stuart, uh, hey, wait a minute. And, and going through prostate cancer or at least screening or elevated PSA and trying to figure out what, why the PSA is elevated. Uh, I was told early on that there's a relationship, and they asked specifically if I had any family history of breast cancer, which surprised me quite a bit because I didn't know there was any relationship. I always, in the back of my head, knew that there was a relationship if, if my father or grandfather had prostate cancer, but I didn't know about the breast cancer. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, one of the key genes that's associated with uh, prostate cancer is uh, the BRCA2 right. gene, right. which uh, stands for BRCA or breast right. cancer, and really identified in those families that had an increased risk of breast and ovarian cancer in women. But as they evaluated the impacts of this gene, what became apparent was that uh, men in these families had increased risk of prostate cancer and uh, uncommon, but uh, significantly increased risk of uh, breast cancer. So there definitely is that uh, link between families, uh, in families, where there may be uh, prevalent cases of breast or ovarian cancer and cases of cancer in men as well. So if the male had 
prostate cancer, say, so the offspring daughter of that male could be a candidate for breast cancer? Yes, that's exactly right. And if that man's prostate cancer is associated, say, with this BRCA2 mutation, then half of his children will inherit that uh, mutation on average. And that'll be both the men and the women. So his daughters will be at increased risk if they inherit that mutation of uh, breast and ovarian cancer. And that's typically onset uh, not before age 30 or 40 years of age, but something that may be very helpful to know uh, early in your adulthood. Yeah, because on a personal note, I know my wife's dad died from prostate cancer, and then she had the BRCA test to see about breast cancer. Fortunately, it turned out that she doesn't have that gene, but she still took that test. Well, and to Michael's point, I think what we're going to be seeing is that uh, over the next 5, 10, 20 years, this will become just a routine part of medical care that folks will be uh, much more familiar with as time goes on. Both as a patient and uh, physicians need to be uh, that much more familiar with it as well. Uh, one of the controversial proposals out there now is to consider doing full genome sequencing on every baby who's born so that folks know um, what their lifetime risk is. So that's, uh, we'll, we'll see whether that comes to pass, but that's uh, sort of one extreme of how this testing may go. Would that be a privacy issue for insurance companies, knowing that you're testing all these things on newborns and then suddenly when they apply for insurance because the tests indicate they're a candidate for such and such disease, they're denied insurance? That's a very important question, and I think the single most important factor that has led people not to get genetic testing is concern over uh, insurance and employment discrimination. Uh, there's now been federal legislation in place for about 10 years or so, uh, and a lot of states have legislation that <clears throat> prohibit discrimination in insurance, health insurance at least, uh, and employment uh, for genetic factors. So at this point, that, that sort of risk is, is low, but uh, it's something that we as a society need to keep an eye on. Stuart, do you have any questions? As, as you know, we take questions email form from our uh, listeners, and we try our best to have our experts answer everyone. Stuart, do you have a question in this area? Well, I think we have a question from Roger in Minneapolis, and Roger writes, and we probably discussed this a few moments ago, but however, Roger writes, I'm a 63-year-old man in pretty good health. My dad has been living with prostate cancer for about 20 years. Should I be worried about getting it as well? Well, of course, uh, <clears throat> bad news is prostate cancer is pretty common. Um, lifetime risk for men is about 10% or so to get prostate cancer <clears throat> and uh, about 2% or so to actually die of prostate cancer. So a lot of prostate cancers out there are relatively um, benign or indolent and men will die with prostate cancer rather than from prostate cancer. Now, if you've got a strong family history of uh, something like prostate cancer, then the chances of that being due to a genetic factor uh, are that much greater. And so if you have a father with prostate cancer, that increases your risk, but um, you'd have to do genetic testing to find out if you were at uh, um, much higher risk, say, than the average uh, person in that situation. And the genetic testing, of course, would go through the urologist would be the typical way? That's right. <clears throat> and so I think as time goes on, probably you'll find more internists uh, and geriatricians who are familiar with this sort of uh, testing, but now the urologist would probably do that. And whether you just had, if it was just your father who was uh, um, affected with uh, prostate cancer, a little uncertain to me whether that would be a strong enough indication to begin genetic testing 
uh, at this point. But certainly monitoring PSA and the other normal mark, uh, normal ways to monitor if you're at higher risk for That's prostate right. cancer, you should still go through, which That's right. starts with the regular PSA. Good. And I think probably a good point to emphasize is it's still in this day and age that the family history is probably the best so-called genetic test, not a test per se, but knowing your family history and uh, uh, those families that have multiple cases and particularly multiple cases at younger ages are those families that are more likely to have a clear genetic factor that's a, a strong risk factor in that, uh, uh, in that family. Okay. Um, Stewart told me a story the other day about the famous folk singer Woody Guthrie. Yeah. Apparently, he passed away from complications of his Huntington's disease, and his son Arlo uh, did not want to know if he carried the gene. And this brings up a lot of different difficult issues for families about whether you want to know if you have a fatal gene in you or not. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> you discuss that a little bit. Well, Huntington's is one of the most uh, difficult, uh, devastating conditions out there. Fortunately, it's relatively rare, but it's a disease that has its onset usually when folks are in their 40s or so uh, and leads to a progressive mental deterioration and this odd movement disorder uh, that then leads to death within about 10 years or so. Now, there's been genetic tests for this for over 30 years, and uh, probably one other factor to mention, though, is that there's really nothing still that can be done that's definitive for the the medical care for this condition to, to reduce the risks of, of death. Now, many personal decisions people can make, of course, with that information, but really no medical information. So half of people who are the child of a person with Huntington's disease will uh, inherit, on average, the disease for this condition. And so early on, people and families with this condition were asked, so when a test becomes available, do you think you might be interested? And about 80% of folks said, yes, actually, I would take that test. So now this test has been available for over 30 years, and 15% of people who are at risk for Huntington's have decided to, to take that test. So it's, it really speaks to, to the psychology in this domain and how when there's not anything definitive you can do about a condition, then a lot of people just don't want to know. Yeah, I, I, I don't think that this conversation should be limited to Huntington's disease. It could be... Lou Gehrig's disease or any other, you know, extremely debilitating and deadly disease. Well, I, I don't know the percentage of people that wind up with Huntington's disease regarding the population, but I would imagine that there's not a huge amount of people winding up with Huntington's disease, and maybe the medical community really isn't that concerned about or interested or spending the money to find that treatment or cure. Could that be part of it? That's part of it. Uh, no question about it. And I think that the a lot of the resources uh, pour into those diseases that are bigger uh, impacts on the population in general. <clears throat> the other factor is that it's a, a brain disease, uh, and uh, the brain is such a tough organ to, to tackle compared to, to, to many other sorts of disease processes. Just to get treatments into the brain and uh, have them work in a stable fashion has proven to be just uh, remarkably difficult. Well, Michael, I think there's another question um, that we have, and uh, I'm not sure. Well, this is part of the subject we're still talking about. Um, Warren from Los Angeles writes, I'm a 64-year-old 60, man and recently married a much younger woman. 
She's only 32 years old, yet she wants to have children. I'm wondering if there might be a genetic effect or problems at my age that could adversely affect our offspring. How do you feel about that, Jeff? Yeah, and I think we've been very familiar for a long time with uh, age effects on women uh, for uh, children, and that uh, once women are in their <clears throat> mid to late 30s, then the uh, risk of having a child with a uh, genetic condition uh, begins to increase <clears throat> fairly quickly. Uh, we've been less certain uh, over time uh, about men, but now we do have some indications that, uh, first of all, a little bit more challenging for older men to, um, to get pregnant to begin with. Talk about some slow swimmers there, uh, so to speak. Um, but men who are older than 40 appear to have about a 15% increased risk of having a child with uh, a, one of a variety of different uh, health problems. So 15% increase uh, is, not, is not huge. Um, there's some difference there, but uh, of course the vast majority of older men uh, will have healthy uh, children. Well, Michael, looks like you're okay. You probably can deal with it. I'll have to talk to Claire about that. Our next topic is is, is very popular one these days. It has to do with commercial services who do DNA testing, promising to give you details on where your ancestors are from and help you connect with family you didn't even know you had. They probably can borrow money from you too, Stuart. Yeah, I know. Uh, Dr. Botkin, please tell us about the different types of products available in the market and the differences between them. I know there's there's one about more genealogy, genealogy and there's the other side is more DNA testing. Right. <clears throat> well, these uh, there are dozens of companies out there now that are offering this sort of testing. Uh, folks may be most familiar with uh, the two most popular at this point, which are 23andMe and uh, Ancestry.com. Are they, are they sponsors of ours yet, Stuart? Not yet, but we're going to go after them after this show, for sure. <laughs> do, you, do you have their phone numbers? <laughs> <laughs> so the Ancestry folks have been around for a while to, to look specifically at your family heritage. So where did you come from uh, uh, in um, centuries past? What, what's your uh, genetic heritage in that respect? And that's proven to be remarkably popular. Um, now, Ancestry actually has just recently got into the healthcare market too, and now they're selling tests for a variety of different health conditions. That's sort of been the domain for 23andMe and a number of these other uh, companies um, selling you uh, tests that uh, impact your, your health or the risk of health. Now, sometimes these tests are, you know, kind of trivial information about what kind of earwax you have, for example, which most folks don't really need a genetic test to tell them about, but uh, others uh, do. And 23andMe now is selling tests for BRCA1, for example, uh, and for <clears throat> diabetes risk. And so some pretty powerful health information can be uh, part of that testing. How do you prove the efficacy of what you get back? I mean, if they tell you, you know, you're 33% Eastern European and the rest of you come from various parts of the world, I mean... How does that really get proven? I mean, what's the uh, standard to say this is totally accurate? Well, and part of what you can do is uh, offer your blood uh, or spit to a variety of different companies who are doing the same thing and sort of cross-reference, find out whether they're all getting the same answer. And the research so far shows that uh, oftentimes not dramatically different answers, but somewhat different answers. Folks are more concerned about the accuracy of these tests for the health conditions, and that is also a significant concern. So folks who are doing these tests ought to be aware that there's some uh, issues in that regard. And so one simple example is the BRCA1 test, where 
they only look at a couple of variants within the gene to see whether you've got those or not. If you get a genetic test from a commercial company through your doctor, then they're going to sequence that entire gene. So um, there's a dramatic difference in that context uh, about the amount of information that's uh, actually being done by that sort of testing. Well, that brings us to this question we have from Sal in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And Sal writes, last Christmas, my kids gave me a DNA testing kit. I haven't sent it in for testing yet because I'm concerned about my privacy. Do these companies sell their data to other companies like drug firms and insurance companies? If so, why would I want to do this? Well, what the companies are doing is, uh, for the most part, <clears throat> all over the map. So the first thing to do is uh, try to take the time to look through the privacy information that the companies put on uh, either their website or with their test information so you can actually uh, have a better understanding of what goes on in that regard. Would that, now, be, would that be even understandable to the average layperson? Well, some of the companies are actually doing a better job. So that's a great question because uh, 10 years ago, trying to sort through these sites was virtually impossible. Are, but they got enough criticism that now the, some of the better companies are doing a better job. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of legal input from their counsel on what to, what to say and talk about. Well, there are, yeah, but they're also now offering choices. And so most of the, and certainly the big companies now will actually ask you whether they have your permission to share your data with uh, third parties. And those third parties are typically uh, researchers who are looking at uh, one issue or another. And almost always they'll be sharing this information in a way that's taking your name and identifying information uh, off that. Uh, but things have improved recently where, again, you, you need to read through it and you need to check the box about whether you want this information shared or not. I think fair to say that nobody's sharing this information, say, with insurance companies. Uh, that would be uh, a quick road to the end of that uh, um, company's future. We know that for a fact? Um, I th Well... That's been expressed to me by friends as you know, very concerning. Yeah, yeah let me I say that's a is. common concern, but I would say that uh, there's no evidence that companies are doing that. It's always hard to, to prove a negative to say we can be positive that they aren't, but uh, uh, it would be a big deal in my field if any company were found to be sharing this kind of information in that way. I think, you know, with all the hacking going on, you never know what, what goes on with these things. I mean, suddenly you'll read something that, you know, 10 million people were hacked about all their personal information that was all sold to a drug company, and that could be catastrophic. I mean, it's uh, something to be concerned about, I guess, before you sign on a dotted line. But. Well, and one other question in this whole arena is to what extent can you de-identify genetic information? because my genetic information is unique to me. Now, you can take my name off it, <clears throat> but if my name is associated with some genetic information over here and I get another test over there, and you can cross-reference those databases, then you may be able to figure out who's who. So there's been a little bit of research that uh, has shown that uh, this is possible in some circumstances. So part of the debate, again, in the field is whether to say simply taking identifying information is going to work because this information is so unique to each of us. So I guess the one big takeaway is we really have to read the fine print and most of us don't. Well, and talk about it, and that's why a lot of us are a bit concerned about the whole direct-to-consumer testing market anyhow, because it really takes the, the doctor out of the loop. Now, you can pursue information with your doctor once you get your test back, but I can assure you that your doctor's not going to like that 
um, process because they're not adequately prepared at this point to interpret those tests with you. So <clears throat> a lot of us tend to prefer, uh, prefer a little more traditional approach where if you have a valid health reason for getting a genetic test, then you've got a doctor there to, to help you with that and a genetic counselor perhaps to help uh, you understand what that means for you and your family. What about the overall cost for these tests? I know shortly before you said these tests are becoming more, um, you know, monetarily affordable, but at the same time, are they fairly expensive for the average person? Uh, they have been. And so the BRCA1 test for one of the major companies has traditionally been about $3,000 or so. And that's for <clears throat> a single test. A little bit less expensive for other family members as you might move through a family with that uh, type of testing, but... Um, that's the magnitude. And that's surprising in this day and age because you can now uh, get your whole genome sequenced in a variety of labs for less than $1,000. So some genetic tests can be cheap and targeted. Other ones, if they're looking at your whole genome, uh, uh, may well be uh, a couple thousand dollars. Are they generally covered by health insurance? No. Insurance companies traditionally have not adequately covered uh, genetic tests. Which is very interesting because they could learn an awful lot right. to use for or against you. Well, uh, that's true. It's got to be a big ethical <clears throat> dilemma. Well, it is. And uh, as mentioned, there's legislation that hopefully prevents them from doing that. But <clears throat> it's going to be an ongoing temptation as we uh, figure out who in the population is at significant increased risk for uh, uh, one disease or another. All right. Well, Stuart, I think we're about to wrap up. But on that note, on that subject, I just do want to announce that my dog Champ is having his genetic testing done and his DNA it's in the mail, and we're going to find out after 12 years what kind of dog he is. He's a nice dog. Yes. I know him. We've had lover boy. We've had sweet boy, nice dog. We've had all sorts of, but anyway, Dr. Bachman, thank you. This is, uh, as I said at the outset, it was uh, a different kind of a show we were going to do today, but topics that uh, I think we, we all need to be aware of, and we appreciate your joining us. My pleasure. Thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Well, Stuart. Be happy. Be healthy, and join us next week for another episode of mantalkradio.net. The information presented in this program is provided for general information purposes only and is not, nor is it intended to be, nor is it a substitute for professional medical advice and treatment. This program is not meant to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease or injury. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. You should always consult a doctor or other health care provider for individual professional medical advice regarding your own health situation. This program is a production of Mantalk Radio, LLC. Copyright Mantalk Radio, LLC, 2019. All rights reserved. We're Michael and Stewart with Mantalk on Radio St. George 100.3 FM. Submit your questions ahead of time to questions at mantalkradio.net. Re-listen or watch again. Search Facebook, YouTube, iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher for Radio St. George or RadioStGeorge.com. We'll see you next week for another edition of Man Talk.